Hey everyone, welcome back to Good Nature, a show about good people doing good things despite challenges like chronic illness, disability, and more. My name is Tony, and I'm a digital media professional with a chronic muscle condition called LGMD2I. Today I talked to Lauren Rutolo, who despite being born with a rare disease called McCune-Albright syndrome, has built a really awesome career that spanned across public relations, entertainment, writing a book, and her most recent work as a producer and director and creative at Johnson & Johnson. On top of all that, we talk about having COVID in its very early days and how complicated that was on top of having a rare disease already. Lauren also talks us through what New York City was like exactly a year ago when the pandemic officially started. We cover a lot, so let's get right to it. Lauren, uh, thanks so much for joining and welcome to the show. It's great to finally get to talk. I don't know if you recall, we were introduced a couple years ago by friend and subscriber of the show, I believe, Summer Watson, who's... I love Summer. Oh, yeah. One of the, the rarest, realist of ones in music and tech that I think we're both fortunate to know. And I think I had reached out about around this time, I think last year, for another project I was working on. And this was, of course, the very start of the pandemic. And and I think you're my first guest I've actually had on this show that has had COVID. Oh, so wow. So what was what was that like? I mean, in terms of, you know, it, it's such a been such a crazy disease that affects everyone so differently. What what are you comfortable sharing about what your specific experience was like? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, I was actually diagnosed in March, so a year ago this month. Um, it was on March 24th. I started having symptoms on March 15th. And uh I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what I had, right? Right. And so I, you know, like they shut down the office. They started shutting down New York City, which is where I live. And everybody's like, COVID, 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 or coronavirus. It wasn't even called COVID just right. yet. Yeah. Coronavirus. And I went, I will never forget. I went out Saturday. They were going to close down restaurants and it was like the last hurrah. And I went out Saturday with a few of my friends and we decided to sit outside. And, you know, in New York City, it was still cold, but it was, you know, it was probably like 50 degrees, if that. But we were like, let's just, I don't know, like we're hearing about this thing. Let's just sit outside. And so we sat outside. And then about two days later, I had the sniffles and I was just like, okay, well, I don't know. Like I just, I didn't really feel good, but I just felt like I had a head cold, but like I, it was like a different kind of head cold. Like I wasn't like sneezing or had a runny nose. I just felt congested. And then three days after that, so that was now a Friday I lost my sense of taste and smell. And I remember that I took some nasal spray the day before that happened. So I was like, I don't know, maybe I'm like allergic to this (laughs) nasal spray because that had never happened to me before. And then by Sunday, by Saturday night, I still didn't have any sense of taste or smell. And I started to like wheeze a little bit. But I didn't, again, didn't really know what was happening. Like some of my friends were like, maybe you have that coronavirus. I was like, where did I get coronavirus from? I'm working from home. I'm not in crowds. Like, 
I never thought, you know, like you never think that it could happen to you. And so that Sunday I went to go get a test and I went to the city MD. They would not test me because I didn't have symptoms that the CDC had put out there at that time. So they refused to test me for coronavirus. And every day my symptoms would get worse. I would go back to city MD. I still didn't have any of the symptoms. So they refused to test me. I finally was really not able to breathe. Um, it was that Tuesday and I called my doctor and I just said to him, like, I think I have whatever is going around. Well, yeah. And I'm not really sure what to do. I've gone to now city MD twice. They have, you know, they won't test me. Do you have any tests? And he said, I currently don't have any tests, but I'm supposed to get 50 tests on Wednesday come in early. If you don't come in early, I cannot promise you that you're going to get tested. Wow. Come in at this time, I will make sure, but you cannot be late. And he was like very adamant that he was only getting 50 and that was it. And so I was like, okay. Like at that point, I didn't really know what to do. Right. And so I went and I got there at eight o'clock in the morning And, you know, while I walk with crutches, pretty mobile walking with crutches. And so there was one flight up and I have been, you know, it's like my regular GP. I have been there a million times. I would always walk up the flight of stairs. I walked up that flight of stairs and I thought I would pass out. Wow. Got into his office and he was like, and I just said, I remember going to grab the desk, holding onto one crutch going to grab the desk and I was fully white and the nurse looked at me. She was like, are you okay? And I was like, I really can't breathe. And I had like N95 mask that I paid $35 for for Amazon at the time. They tested me, of course, you know, like they went through everything, strap, flu, no, both of those came back negative. And then it took three days to get the test back. So now I was like in for symptoms for like 10 days, 11 days before I was even confirmed. And this was in the height of it. And um, they sent me home immediately and they told me, do not open your door. Do not do anything. You know, like it was basic. I mean, when you said quarantine back in March or a year ago, like you meant quarantine. Yeah. It was like, you don't leave your house. People don't come near you. You must stay six feet apart. If you need something delivered, you know, like at that point, it was even like, could it be on plastic bags? Make sure that you have a Clorox wipe. Like it was so intense at that point. And, you know, I work for Johnson and Johnson, who was also um, and in their communications department. And we were at that time you know, talking about ways to be transparent with our community and things that we were doing. And so here I am working for a company that is working on a treatment and or vaccine at that time, right? We didn't know exactly what it would be, but we figured it would be a vaccine. And here I am with coronavirus, really not being able to walk, not being able to do much and working full time. And so it was, it was really hard. Um, it stayed in my body for a really long time. 
And then um, I had symptoms all the way through the summer. Wow. You know, I had, I lost, I had a full loss of uh, decompletion of vitamins in my body and a, a, probably a headache, a constant headache for five months would never go away. And that was due to the lack of oxygen. That's a pretty incredibly unfortunate thing to go through, obviously, and to, you know, have the extra stressful factor of this is that, so we're recording this today is literally one year since it was declared a pandemic. Uh, It's one year since I remember being at work a couple days before that. And even just like two days before all everything, you know, kind of got extremely crazy. There were the conversations of like, well, no one really knows what this is going to be. Maybe it's just something like, you know, we won't shake hands with people. You sanitize, you know, our, our office manager at the time was like doing everything she could and things felt pretty all right. But I remember having the conversation with a coworker. It's like, you know what? People are so silly and no one's going to really take this seriously until a celebrity gets it. So yeah. then <laughs> a year ago today, Tom Hanks announces he has it. And the NBA, the NBA shut its season down. I remember I was driving home and I knew something was up because I was going from Santa Monica to just past downtown LA. And usually that is a miserable, miserable climb in traffic. And I was using Waze and I got a notification that said, traffic's opening up. Your commute is going to take 25 less minutes. And I was like, well, that's not anything I've ever seen. And then I started getting like all the texts about Tom Hanks and the NBA and it was completely insane. But to actually be, you know, one of the few that got the disease that early on had to be exceptionally wild. And on top of that, you have a chronic illness. So I remember very early on in, you know, kind of tracking as much as I could as a disabled person and be like, well, what does this mean for us? And of course, it sounds like the the middle version of that is exactly what you dealt with. And that is very, very bad. And I'm so sorry you had to go through that. But I remember seeing you posting about things that like a lot of people weren't considering, like literally when you have mobility issues, we have to use handrails and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I, I remember being super conscious of that early on that like, yeah, if I have to go up a flight of stairs, I have to touch something that a lot of people have also touched and it was it was an added layer of stress that a lot of able-bodied people of course didn't have to worry about and i recall pretty early on you were involved with something i believe at johnson and johnson i don't know if it was an official program but it was called road to a vaccine yeah that's that is the show that i uh helped create and uh, i'm the executive producer of it yeah talk a little bit about that because it was literally the first time so early on when there was still the people trying to figure out like, oh, should we wear masks? It's so crazy to think about this all now. Even the fact that you, what you had to go through to get a test is kind of like what I'm navigating now to to get a vaccine. And it's so crazy how much has happened in the past year. But talk talk about Road to a Vaccine as a program. So Road to a Vaccine as a program was thought about less greenlit, produced, and live in 45 days. Wow. So now if you think about that, think about contracts, think about building a show, think about the technology. How are you going to get people 
around the world. Nobody can travel. Nobody can leave their homes. You know, how are you going to really have a thoughtful and an informative conversation? Um, so everything from booking talent to partnering with scientists to, you know, getting doctors and nurses and everybody booked for the show and, you know, Johnson and Johnson, a compliant company. Right. And so if you think about it, talk about like a race, it was also like not only the race and the road to a vaccine, but a race to get this show live. And because we knew that it was so important to educate consumers and educate people what was happening, right? So all of a sudden, scientists are your, they've always been your champions, right? But they're at the forefront now, right? Right. They're telling you what you need to do. Nobody knew who Fauci was three days before (laughs) it was a pandemic, right? If you were part of the scientific community, you know, yes, of course, you knew who he was and, you know, the NIH. But now all of a sudden you're you're talking about what is this John Hopkins data coming out today? And Fauci mm-hmm. said this. And, you know, it was like what I loved. It was like no longer the Kardashians. And it was like Fauci. Right. It was right. like, finally, we're in a world where we can trust. But the show is a one hour educational live program hosted by Lisa Ling, where Johnson and Johnson convenes conversations about what does it take to build a vaccine, design a vaccine, manufacture it in large scales, and to get it to what we call the last mile. And what are all the in-between steps? So an in-between step is how do you educate the doctors? How do you engage your front line? You know, how do you speak to the patients and the families that are being affected by this terrible virus, right? And we're still in the thick of it. There is no way just because people are starting to get vaccinated that it's over. Right. You know, the virus is, has shown that it's bigger than us. And it keeps on showing that, right, with all the new variants coming out and, you know, like, and our scientists are there and they're, they've been at the forefront, you know, I was at the World Economic Forum at Davos in January, which is where we heard about this virus. And from that moment on, it was hands on deck, no matter where it was going to be in the world, right? We never thought that it would come and become our entire existence and never thought that we were going to be out of work uh, for months and, you know, like years now, right? Like it's more than a year that people haven't gone into the office. And now, and I think life itself has changed, right? Schools have changed. Um, Personalities have changed. You know, we went through politics during this time. There's so much that has happened. And what this show really did was, bring very important conversations to the forefront and put them out there in a not only a recognizable way but an easy way to communicate around the truth that was happening because you would hear it directly from the people either making a vaccine they were not always johnson and johnson people on the show i think that was what really makes our show so 
incredible and informative is that we never sided on the side of Johnson and Johnson and we're so great. And here's, here's a look at what we're doing. We said, we are one person and one company, you know, not one person, we're a whole lot of people and one company that is contributing to helping end this pandemic, right? And so we brought leaders from around the world to the show to really talk about it. And every show, whether we spoke about health inequities to we spoke with Dr. Francis Collins, who is Fauci's boss, right? And the head of the NIH to somebody named uh, Dr. Tom Englesby, who's heading up the John Hopkins data, which is, you know, what what feeds into your CNN and MSNBC screens where they say how many people are infected and how many people died. And, you know, like, what does that data really mean? And it, you know, for somebody like myself, who is not only a disabled person, but a consumer and, you know, and worked in entertainment and media, for me to really grapple and understand, I I needed to understand it in order to help produce it, right? Yeah. And so it was it was an education for not only myself but our entire team. You know, we educated people from around the world, and we took live questions from people, and it, you know, it went on all of our uh, global corporate channels. We translated the show into 10 different languages. It was seen in more than 110 countries. So it's something we're really proud of. So shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about your background. A lot of why, you know, you being among the earlier people stateside to get this disease was particularly challenging. So you have a condition, you were born with a condition called McCune-Albright syndrome. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Did I say it right even? You did. Woo! So I guess what kind of challenges has that, you know, kind of thrown your way over the years? And is there particular advice you might give to like parents or people dealing with it that is pretty much your go-to on how to manage the day-to-day that you're flourishing in a really cool career? Well, I think that, you know, so yeah, so I have McCune-Albright syndrome. It is a rare genetic disease, you know what we think is less than 10,000 people globally, of course, because we're a rare genetic disease, but there's no count. There's no like coronavirus ticker, right? There's right. no Albright sticker that says today X amount of people were diagnosed. No, like you'd be lucky to, to be in a room with somebody else. The fact that I've been in a room with 10 people at one time with this disease was a big deal to me mm-hmm. and a big deal to, you know, to those who are affected with the rare disease. Um, I was diagnosed originally, I wasn't fully diagnosed, but my first symptoms were at nine months old, where I um, was where I got my period. And then at 18 months old, I broke my femur bone, which is the hardest bone to break. And so those coupled together, they diagnosed me with this rare disease. I'm 44 years old. So back then, you know, there was no Google, you didn't just Google what this was, right? Um, you grew up, I grew up, um, in a world where there was a lot of research done. You, you know, there was a lot of recommendations on people that could potentially help you. My parents, thankfully, um, were able to pay for, for me to go see specialists and to go 
around the world if needed to help cure. Not, I mean, cure, there is no cure for this disease, but to help me be vertical. Um, I think one of the things that I have learned, and I had to learn this at a very young age, and I made a dedication to myself, and I have lived into this since I'm five years old, was my trajectory was to sit in a wheelchair. And that just, that, that was not something that I personally saw for myself. I didn't see it in my head. I didn't feel it in my heart, but my bones were not able to keep up with me, right? They were, you know, essentially you could call them brittle bones, but I have cysts in my bones. I don't have to get into the technicalities of it, but ultimately my bones deformed at a early age because they couldn't take the weight of myself growing and I'm not an overweight person and I'm not, you know, it was just the nat, you know, me naturally growing and my body couldn't take it. I, uh, by the time I was five years old, I already broke my femur bones four times, was in body casts. Um, and I made a decision to stand and to be vertical, no matter what that took. And, you know, I walk with forearm crutches to me, it was really important to stay up and to stand tall. And that's what I felt in my heart. And that's still what I feel in my heart today. And I work at it every single day. So I made that commitment and my parents and my physical therapist and my sisters and everyone around me kind of had to make that commitment with me. And I think that the thing that I tell people today about living with a rare disease or living with anything that is different, right? It doesn't have to be, you don't have to walk with crutches. You don't have to be in a wheelchair. You don't, you, you know, I think that diversity and inclusion is so at the forefront of conversation today. And if you just feel different, right? Like that can affect you in any which way. And I didn't, I think that the thing is, is that because I was diagnosed as a child, I didn't know another life. So it wasn't like I all of a sudden became disabled. Right. I was basically born into that. And so while I chose a, a difficult life because I always had to be in physical therapy, physical therapy was my after school activity, right? I didn't go to the playground. I wasn't in gymnastics. I didn't go roller skating like those you know, like when all of my other friends were doing those things after school, my after school that activity was going on a manual treadmill, right? Right. I had to defy the odds of what every medical professional was telling me. And, and the only reason that I was able to do that is because I, it was my mindset. And so what I tell people today is, especially parents, is don't be afraid of your children. Don't be afraid of the disease or the virus or whatever they may have that sets them apart and makes them different. If you choose to make them feel different and make them scared or nervous because you are, they won't be able to live the life that they see for themselves. And whatever that life may be, right? Like I saw myself being vertical. And that doesn't take away from anybody that sits in a wheelchair. That doesn't take away from anybody that walks or, you know, whatever that is. 
But if my parents made me afraid of my disease, I wouldn't have been able to do the things that I did because my mindset would have been different, right? And so that's what I constantly tell is to treat people the same. So if you have brothers and sisters, you hope that everybody is created equally and treated equally. And I was treated the same way my two sisters were. Did I have, yes. Did I have other things? And my parents, did I have doctor's appointments and I had physical therapy and my parents had to take me to those and do those things for me? Yes. So did I have special time with them? Yes, of course I did. But they didn't make me nervous about my disease, right? They didn't tell me that, Lauren, you're different and here's why you're different. And I just think that when it comes to people that have physical challenges or, you know, or disabled, we have never tried as a society to make them fit in. Right. And we're scared of them. And we show that in the way that we stare at them. We show that in the way that if I'm walking down the streets, if I'm walking on Third Avenue in New York City downtown, and a child looks at me different and the mother pulls that child away and says, please don't stare at that woman. That person all of a sudden becomes scared and they think they did something wrong. And therefore, they're always going to treat people that look like me like that. And it's time for our society to start including, and something that I've been talking about lately is to take five, get to know people, right? I think that we, what we have learned over this last year is, is that diversity and inclusion needs to be at the forefront, right? We need to start including people in conversations and start giving people a chance. And when we don't do that, we just, we lose. And the, you know, like everybody at one point in time is going to feel disabled, whether they break a finger or an ankle or, you know, get older. Yeah, exactly. And, and we need to learn that and we need to start including people that look like us, Tony, in the workplace. And we need to start including them in your circle of friends and in restaurants. And, in you know, it's, we are this, like, we're the largest and most diverse community in the world, but yet we ourselves are silent. Yeah. And we have to stop being silent. And when we ourselves stop being silent, those around us will not be afraid and they will start including So that's just like my biggest message that I tell patients, no matter what your disease may be, or to parents and to caretakers is stop being afraid. Don't be silent, you know, do what's in your heart and in your mind, because that in in your head and in your heart has, you know, not everybody thinks the same, but everybody has the power to do something in their heart and their head. And, you know, because your legs doesn't work, that doesn't mean that your life is over. Let's talk a little bit about how you've applied. Um, it's a it's a great mindset, obviously. And like selfishly, I, a big reason I do these interviews in this show is to, you know, kind of steal little nuggets from people like yourself that uh, at times, you know, no one's, I don't think, navigating this stuff perfectly. But right. I have a lot to learn. It's so interesting because... I have a good mix of people that were that have been dealing with these challenges since birth. And then people like myself where really it's only been about four or five years where I've had like significant 
challenges because of this. So I go back and forth where it's like, sometimes it can seem like a superpower. Right. You know, if I'd been dealing with this since I was a kid and, and my family had been versed in it in any way, maybe it would be helping me right now. But at the same time, it's like, well, would I have traded those moments of just like going through life? And, and thankfully, I was still a, a good person, I like to think. But right. just would I trade those moments of like just coasting through the day and not thinking anything else? Um, so I guess my question with that is one, in terms of your career, and I actually might be one of the only people you have conversations like this about that would want to talk about dance on. Where I, <laughs> Probably. I, I, I come from the content world. Um, I, I've worked at very similar companies. So I, I'm familiar with that sort of work at like an organization like dance on. But then, you know, fast forward. Now you're at Johnson and Johnson with a really big, important and kind of the coolest type of work you could do in a company like that, in my opinion. And I wonder if, you know, you seem to have a really good approach and balance to, you obviously have this demanding and cool nine to five, but you also do a lot of, I want to say like work on your personal profile in terms of like just you as a professional and, you know, being out there and, you know, doing a lot of public speaking and whatnot. So I wonder, do you, was there something that if you didn't have this side that you've worked on for your own like public persona and how you navigate your challenge, do you think you would have the job you have now without that? So I have to say, um, yes, I would. Um, and I would say that the reason why I have been able to work at companies like TV Guide and like Hearst magazines working on, you know, some of the biggest magazines in the world, Cosmo and Marie Claire and Seventeen and Good Housekeeping and, you know, things like that. And now at um, Johnson & Johnson and why I've been able to work at these household brands is because of my determination, right? Right. And so, and I think that I've had that determination forever, but I didn't really, Tony, find this voice of mine until a few years ago from a disability standpoint and really owning who I was and who I am today. And, you know, just, it really wasn't until I was at Hearst Magazines Well, I've always had a big mouth and I have, you know, I'm like small stature, big mouth, but I didn't really showcase my true voice and my passion for speaking and talking to people and being part of a community and speaking to various different communities till I was in my thirties. And so I have done a, you know, what I think is a good job of knowing the kind of job that I want, going after it, finding people that work there. And ultimately I have, always gone. And I think that what I've always had to do, because I, I believe in my heart. And I mean, I know that there are not many people that look like me in the workplace, right? There are not many people that, that look like you in the workplace. And if I just went in cold, right, without knowing somebody, and or without 
honestly stalking them on LinkedIn or stalking uh-huh. them via fax. That's how I got my first job ever. I faxed somebody 30 times my resume and they called me to, for me to stop sending my resume. <laughs> and then I insisted on getting an interview. So like, again, like it was this determination that I had again, just like I had that determination to be vertical. I had that determination to work at a radio station and to work at MTV and to work, you know, it's was like, I always had to look within Lauren to do it, but not just the voice that Lauren created later on in her life. Now I'm hoping that I'm at a point where I can go into other companies. You know, I just launched my own personal brand outside of work, uh, laurenrotolo.net, and, you know, working on what my speaking will be and the kind of talks that I will deliver and that I have delivered before. But again, I, I think I'm really finding my voice and honing in on it now and utilizing the technologies that we have and the connections that we have as community through social media to even elevate my voice even more. So I think that, you know, working at a place like Johnson and Johnson right now, it allows me to, yes, hi, I'm, you know, Lauren Rotolo, I'm a public speaker, I'm a disability advocate, and I work for Johnson and Johnson, right? right? So like, yes, like, those are all recognizable things, but I'm still Lauren, and I and still always going to push and make sure that whatever I do or wherever I go in my career, whatever talk I give matches with who I am. And at that point in my life, when I started working with J&J, I knew that I needed to be at a place that not only cared for its employees, but cared for people. Yeah. And like, so that's why I'm so thrilled to be at a company like Johnson Johnson, because they ultimately do. And I've never really been in a situation like that. Right. Um, I worked in entertainment. Um, some people didn't even know my name. Right. They knew me as that little girl at Walker crutches. And so while yes, you know, now I'm just determined to change the workplace and to get more people like me, you know, like today I was featured in a LinkedIn article because of my voice for international women's day. And so I'm just, I think that I'm empowered now to use this voice that I have and the disability that I have to showcase to the world that you're going to be okay and everything is going to be okay um, if you have determination. Again, selfishly, in my own job hunt, I, I've been trying the the LinkedIn approach, but I might have to pivot to facts. because You may have to pivot to facts. You might be onto something there. I bet a lot of these Absolutely. People... Like if you could find somebody with a fax machine and- and, you know, send them your resume every day, maybe on like, you know, like pink paper or like send a note, right? Like maybe it's time we have to kick it old school again. But yeah, I mean, I think that the world is ever changing. And my hope is that this invisible community becomes invincible one day. In your inclusivity advocacy, which by the way, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> it's another thing I can kind of lean on as I'm, I'm trying to contribute my own things to, the, to that. And in speaking about the workplace, we talk about that a lot with guests on the show. I'm sure you have, we could probably do an entire another episode uh, and just talk about the horror stories we both have from working at a lot of media companies and you know what we've dealt with. Um, but what do you think, what do you think most companies get wrong 
that you're focused on changing when it comes to including disabled people in the conversation? I think you have to start with that you're not included in the conversation, that they're not thinking about it. Right. I think that that's where you need to start, right? So you need to start with somebody like me or somebody like you or somebody that your neighbor that knows you and says, you know what, I know this great guy named Tony, right? I need you to interview him. And I, you know, why? Yeah, he may walk with this or sit like, you know, whatever it may be. And that's part of Tony and that's part of Lauren. And then people won't be afraid. We're just not, we're really not part of any diversity and inclusion plans. I could tell you that I have gone to heads of talent acquisition at major companies and said, how many disabled people do you hire a year? And they will have no idea. But if I said to them, how many Latin people do you hire a year? They know that at the top of their mind. You know, that's like in their pocket. Sure. And that's sadly also pretty recent. So it's almost like there's times I'll have the conversation and, you know, I will try to speak to it, you know, in this era, we get to do most to all job interview conversations over Zoom calls, et cetera. So I do try to organically bring up the fact that I am you know, dealing with something particularly challenging and unique and spin it in a way that like, well, here's how it makes me better at doing a job. And a lot of people aren't prepared to hear, but it's like doing a job is pretty easy and it's kind of fun. And in terms of like, comparing it to how we have to navigate the world and how creative and strategic we have to be just because the world is not built for people like us, this job you need to fill, that's easy for me. And let me tell you, like, it gets a mixed bag of reactions. I I think one, to your point, people aren't prepared to even hear that. And two, you know, it might just honestly be that. I don't think anyone is like meaning to come off as like dismissive of it. I think people just aren't prepared to have the conversation, but maybe it's coming. They just um, don't even think it's in their purview. Right. I don't even think that they're thinking about it, if I have to be truly honest with you. Yeah. They're just not. It's not part of who they are. It's not part of not who they are. It's not a demand yet, right? Sure. It's not... Nobody says today, and even at the, even at Johnson and Johnson, which you know does a pretty good job, and it's always on diversity list. But I have to say, I, I walk around, I don't see anybody like me. Um, and I've had those conversations, and I think that I well, I know that they're very open to it. And so now, so they have their employee communications team. They did an employee photo shoot. They called me. I'm included in it. Mm-hmm. They did an employee video. They called me. You know, so it's about making yourself known too and saying, with whether it be within the company that you're in or the company that you want to work for, I'm here and I need you to include me. Um, in wrapping up, you mentioned your website. I know you have a book currently available, but yes. what's next for you and where else would you like people to find you? Um, so definitely on my website at laurenrotolo.net, on LinkedIn, please do connect with me on social media. Um, I do a lot of Instagram and Instagram lives, um, and I will be doing more of that. My book is called Unstoppable in Stilettos, with this, which is the trajectory of my life thus far. And it starts with a Lauren lesson at the beginning of every chapter. Um, but I'm going to be doing a lot more live, hopefully a lot more public speaking, Um, And really 
helping get people that look like me into the workplace, into movies, into television. You know, I don't want people that to just play a disabled person. I want them to be disabled. I want to start making this community invincible. And when you say the word inclusion, that you start in thinking about that includes all kinds of people. Because who we are and what we are and the way we walk, I call it, that's just our mode of transportation. <laughs> well, Lauren, thanks again so much. This has been awesome and Thank stay well. You. And we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Tony. So I'll drop a link to Lauren's website down in the description. Uh, if you haven't yet, if you could subscribe, if you want to check out an older episode, hopefully come back for a new one in the future. Um, until then, stay good. <laughs>